I need you to know that it's completely hypothetical. <laughs> um, I would never have done anything like this as a kid, but maybe you did. Uh, maybe you had an incident like this when you were growing up where uh, you and possibly a brother or sister, maybe multiple siblings were playing rambunctiously in the house and uh, there was a a valuable item that mom or dad told you, if you keep horsing around, you're going to knock that over and break it. And, uh, And you knew you better not knock that thing over and break it. But as playing with siblings goes, one day you're doing exactly what mom and dad told you not to do, and uh, you're horsing around and having the best of times, and oops, <laughs> that thing flies from the coffee table, and it fell. And to this day, you still have no idea how the laws of gravity stopped for a moment, and that item lifted off the coffee table and fell, but it did, and it, and it broke. Of course it broke. It broke into a billion pieces uh, um, that, are, that are not repairable, that are not replaceable, nor even recognizable. It shattered, and, uh, and that prized family heirloom is gone, gone forever. And then what happens next? Because it's what happens next that I really want to think about. You and sibling or siblings begin to look at one another, and the debate starts, right? Who's going to tell, and tell mom and dad that this thing is broken? Uh, who's going to take the broken pieces and show mom and dad the damage? Who's going to be the one that answers the question for mom and dad, were you horsing around? And the older siblings, which is me, I mean, hypothetically speaking, which was me, uh, usually wins this argument and you escape and make the younger sibling or siblings do it. And, uh, and someone has to go and tell mom and dad and look them in the face and tell them that this thing is broken. And the older, wiser child probably hoping that mom and dad would take out the first part of their wrath on the messenger you send the younger sibling in to tell mom and dad what's happened. Why is that? It's because we don't like to be the bearer of bad news. We learned it as a kid when that vase was broken, but even as adults, it it sticks with us. We don't want to be the bearer of bad news. If you've ever owned a business or been in a management position and you've had to go and tell someone uh, that they're fired, that's not an enjoyable thing to do. That's not something people uh, look forward to. It's not an enjoyable job to deliver that sort of news. Equally so, I believe, we don't like to be the bearer of bad news when it comes to the gospel. The gospel has a bad news side of it, and that's the part we really don't like sharing. We love to talk about how God's blessed us, or how God loves us, or how we've been shown the mercy of God, how he's poured out blessing upon top of blessing in our lives. That, that's, that's pretty easy to share, but the thing is, before someone has a reason to listen to the good news, they need to be told what the bad news is. They need, they need to be shown that if you don't turn your life over to God, you're doomed for all eternity. That's really bad news. And there's no salvation without hearing the bad side of the good news. You have to understand what it means to be lost. You have to understand the consequences of of being lost. You have to understand what uh, the wrath of God is for your sin before you can understand the good news of salvation. That he's paid our penalty for us. That he's died on the cross to redeem us. So we can escape the wrath of God. And that's exactly where Jonah's at in our text today. Jonah has to be the one that goes to Nineveh with the bad news so that they have an opportunity to hear the the really good news. However, it's in receiving this this, this bad news from Jonah that they're going to become objects of God's mercy, which is really good. And so let's walk through the chapter. You just heard it read for you. Ten verses this morning, not a lot of text. But let's see what we learn here in this text. 
Start in verse 1 with me. It says, When the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. I don't know about you this morning, church family, but I'm really glad, personally, really glad that we serve a God of second chances. Because here's the thing. If we were not serving a God of second chances, me and you would have been dead a long time ago. If he gave us what we deserved. And some of you here have been walking away from the Lord. Maybe you haven't walked faithful with the Lord uh, ever or for a long time. And you're wondering, even as you sit there, can I even come back to God? I mean, would God even take me back? What would it look like if I tried to come back to God? Would he take me? The answer is 100%. Absolutely, without a shadow of a doubt, yes. Because the reality is that the word of God, if you're here in this room this morning and you're hearing the word of God read and taught to you, the reality is for you, just like in Jonah chapter, or chapter 3 verse 1 that we just read, the word of God is coming to you a second time. You have the opportunity that's before you today to yield your life to Christ. And no matter how, how far from the Lord you are, no, how, how, no matter how far you've ran from the Lord, you're always one step back to him. Repentance, turning to him and asking for forgiveness. But here's the thing with coming back to God. It's not like you can just brush it off and say, well, God, I'm glad to be back. I'm glad that we could put those irreconcilable differences behind us. It doesn't work like that. You can't say, well, uh, you wanted me to do fill in the blank. I mean, think about Jonah's life here in the text that we've been reading. You wanted me to do fill in the blank. I didn't want to do that thing, so I ran from you. And now I'm back. You've taken me back. And so I'm glad that we can just move on from that difference of opinions that we had. It doesn't work like that. You you can't just ignore the thing that you were running from God because of. God isn't going to lead you anywhere until you go back to that place where you were disobedient and rebellious and said no to him and deal with that. God was right. You were wrong. And repentance means going back to that place where you were wrong and admitting, God, you were right. And I'll follow you. I'll be obedient. Would you forgive me of that rebelliousness? That's what repentance is. Continuing the text with me in verse 3, it says, So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city. Going a day's journey, a third of the way through, he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. You have to picture this. I think it's in picturing that this, this, this really is strange. It really stands out to you when you think about all that's just happened in the last two chapters that we've learned in, in Jonah. Jonah's been in the belly of a fish for three days. He's been swimming in gastric juices. That's been his hot tub uh, for the last, uh, last three days. And so you can imagine coming out of that environment, he's bleached white from the, the, the stomach acids of this fish. His hair would have been white. Beard white, clothes white. I mean, he's, he's a, he's a strange-looking character after having gone through what he went through. And those are some pretty, spe- pretty nice special effects for this message that he's about to preach. You can imagine this guy coming to you, and you're like, what in the world happened to you? And then he starts claiming this, this message. And speaking of the message, it's pretty interesting, too. In our English Bibles, I'm reading in the ESV, in our English Bibles, it's only uh, eight words long. In the Hebrew... Jonah would have spoken. It's even shorter. It's only five words. You, you see it in your text. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Some of you here today wish I would preach a five-word sermon. Sorry. 
In this short sermon, though, we see the word of God is delivered to these people of Nineveh as God had commanded for Jonah to do. And though it's a short sermon, it's a powerful one. Uh, Theodore Beza, uh, back in the 16th century, used to talk about John Calvin's sermons. And he would say that every word weighed a pound. And that's how it felt when it fell on you. That's sort of this sermon here. This was his sermon from the Lord to them. And what it lacked in length, it made up for in substance. And here's the amazing part. It worked. Continue reading. Look at verse 5 with me. It says, And the people of Nineveh, Nineveh believed God. And they called for a fast, and they put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Verse 6, And the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Now, humanly speaking, this made no sense. Humanly speaking, it made no sense why they would believe, why they would listen to this guy and the way that he looks and the message that he's proclaiming and believe. It makes no sense. Humanly speaking, they should have looked at Jonah and said, take your fish-smelling babble back to Jerusalem. We don't want to listen to you. You smell terrible. Or worse, impale him or skin him alive, which is what they did to their enemies. But we know that because of God and because God is sovereignly appointing this moment and sovereignly using his word that Jonah's delivering, it changes it changes their hearts. It changes their response to this, this very short sermon. The Spirit of God took these five Hebrew words and made them so real and so urgent that the people repented and bowed their knees to God. Continue reading with me. We'll see what happens. King's still speaking here. The king uh, it says, or speaking of the king, it says, And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and and beast be covered with sackcloth. It's really interesting here that the king issued this decree that neither man nor beast should eat. This fast for uh, all living things, right? And you may ask, well, Matt, what in the world did the cows do wrong? Why were they not allowed to eat? The answer is nothing. They hadn't done anything wrong, but this drives home a point. See, I learned something not long ago. Uh, I grew up in the country, like in the sticks, like more rural than bun, like 30 minutes outside of nowhere, Louisiana. But I didn't grow up around livestock. I didn't grow up around horses and cows and that sort of thing. And here in the last few years, uh, Stephen Wade has been getting me to take care of his cows when he's out of town to give them food and water. Uh, because I let it slip that I know how to run a tractor. In other words, I got suckered, and, uh, and he's been using me to do that. But, but, but here's what I learned in, in doing this for Stephen. I learned that these cows, they're hungry, right? And when they see that green tractor coming, they know that means food, and they're telling that tractor, I'm hungry. And so in that moment, it's the awfulest noise you've ever heard, right? You know like the children's books where you, you hit the little button, it's moo. That is not what it sounds like. It's the awfulest sound you've ever heard. And you're, it's like they're yelling at you as they see the tractor coming. They're making the awfulest noise you've ever heard. And Stephen only has a couple cows. <laughs> From the cow owner in the back. This, this scene, extrapolate this out to a whole city full of people and livestock. It was incredibly noisy. It was the awfulest thing you'd ever heard. Every cow, horse, camel, all making their noises. And it was all done for a purpose. It was to set this overall atmosphere and tone of mourning. 
The, the king wanted these folks to feel the weight of their wickedness and sin. Further, if you look at it, this use of sackcloth. It's not like God has like a fashion preference. He's like, that'd look good on you. You know, go ahead and put on some sackcloth and tie a bow around it. That's, that's sharp. It's this idea that their garments, this sackcloth was ripped. It's a physical picture of the inner torment that's going on in their heart because of sin. Let's look at it. Let's see this brokenness. Let's hear it. Let's hear this mourning and this brokenness from every person, but also from the livestock. We want to feel the weight of this wickedness that we've been a part of. It says, let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God, the text says. To this point, the Ninevites, they wanted to be seen as mighty, but it was a mighty military strength. Remember the background information I gave you uh, last week. If you remember these folks, they're, they're a brutal people. They, they, uh, they, they took pride in how much brutality they had. And they would, they would skin people alive and, and put their literal human flesh on the walls of their cities to, to show this is the kind of people we are. This is what happens when you mess with us. They would impale people and put them out in front of their city gates to deter uh, other people that would come and mess with Nineveh because this is the type of people we are. They would rape women and children and brag about it. This was an incredibly wicked and brutal city. They wanted to be seen as mighty. But here, though, after this short five-word sermon, the king commanded them to be mighty, but it was mighty in humiliation and repentance. This is a complete turn from what they were wanting to be seen as before. The king still speaking. Continue reading with me. He says, let everyone turn from his evil way and the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and return from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And when God saw they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. You may read that and wonder, well, why in the world? Why, why, would, why would God not carry out this, this? These are a wicked people. These are a depraved people. Why would God not destroy them? And the answer is because God overflows with compassion and mercy. And friends, we're experiencing it in our day and age as well. Our nation is not a godly nation. We've turned our back on God in, in numerous ways, and yet His mercy and compassion, His long-suffering, He's patient. God never delights in judgment. He never delights in the death of the wicked. He delights in mercy and how I wish this morning that we could rest in that image of God. That God is Father and that He delights in showing mercy. If you're a parent, you get some semblance of this, right? The, the, the sense that even as an earthly parent, we want to show mercy, right? There's a difference. I've noticed this the older that, that our kids, <clears throat> Desmond, has gotten. Uh, there's a difference between I'm sad because I was caught doing something wrong or I'm sad because I'm being disciplined for doing something wrong. There's a difference between that and genuine remorse because I've disobeyed, I've sinned, and I see that. A genuine remorse because I've been disobedient to my authority, mommy and daddy. There's a difference there. And when that happens, when that genuine remorse happens, and it's not a sadness because I got caught, you want to run to them. Your heart breaks for them because they get it. They get their, their sin. They get their disobedience. And, and that's just as an earthly parent that's sinful. God is a perfect parent. He's our father who has no sin, who is perfect in the way that he parents us. And that's how God is towards us. His mercy is overwhelming. 
in the midst of our, our, our repentance, when we've understood our wickedness, that's what his love looks like. It's overflowing mercy. Now, there's a lot of places that we could go. That's the end of our text. Those are our ten verses, not the end of our sermon. There's a lot of places we could go in application of this text, but I want to spend the rest of our time this morning thinking through a couple things. A couple things. The, the na- so, so two, I'll, I'll give you them and then we'll walk through them. The nature of how God uses us, his people, in the world today. And I told you last week when we started the book of Jonah, there are two big observations in Jonah that we, that we would see and sort of repeated throughout Jonah. The first one was this. How does God pursue us? We worship a God who pursues, right? The God who pursues. So what does that look like? What does it look like for God to pursue us in our sin? What does it look like for God to pursue the lost and, and use us in God pursuing the lost? And so last week, as we worked, worked, worked through the first two chapters, we observed uh, this contrast between God's heart for the wicked Ninevites and Jonah's heart for the wicked Ninevites. We, we saw in the text what a real sinner is, right? A, a rebellious person is anyone that says no to God. That's the Ninevites. That's Jonah. That's us. We're all Jonah. We're all Ninevites. We also saw last week who the real Savior is. That Jonah is giving us a a foreshadowing of Jesus. That that Jonah is giving us a picture of the one who was to come, the true and better Jonah. That Jesus did all the things right that Jonah did wrong. That Jesus was thrown into the sea of God's wrath. Not an ocean, a literal ocean, but the sea of God's wrath. He was swallowed up by the earth and then he arose and defeated death. That God pursues us. God comes after us in the Holy Spirit. There's a second major theme, though, and I told you this last week, that God would use us, his people, in the world today, that God has a mission, that God has a mission from the the beginning of time, and that mission is to save a people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And so here's that second major theme. How does God use us, his people, the church, to accomplish his mission in the world today? The mission of saving people from their sins. Now, God is using people like me, like you, to bring lost people to him, to himself, and that process is called evangelism. Now, if you haven't been to church or you don't normally go to church or you haven't been in a long time, you may have just checked out for one of two reasons. You may, on the one hand, be saying, well, that's why we don't go to church, kids, because the preacher likes to use big $3 words that nobody knows what they mean, and and so it's just better off for us to sit at home. That may be you. Or... You may have turned off because you said, see, this is what happens when we go to church. They always want to talk about how can they convert the rest of us, right? If you're a skeptic, if you don't believe the gospel, that may have been your perspective when I said that. When we talk about this idea of evangelism, it sort of affirmed what you were thinking. See, they just want to, they just want to convert us to their way of thinking. If that's your thought, if that's your initial knee-jerk reaction, then rest assured, this topic makes most people in this room a little nervous, Even for the the, the most mature believers, this idea, this topic can make our heart beat fast when we think about being obedient to this command, this idea. I've heard it said one time that evangelism can simply be defined as two very nervous people talking to each other. I think it's true. Most people are, are paralyzed when it comes to sharing the good news, sharing Jesus, and sharing the gospel. And I think there's a number of reasons for that. I think we 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 can get to this place where like I don't know where to start. I don't know what to say. I don't know how to begin a conversation like that. Or maybe I, uh, I, I don't want to say the wrong thing. I don't want to mess somebody up. 
by saying the wrong thing, or maybe I don't, I don't know what to say. If they start asking hard questions, I don't know that I'll have the answers for those questions. And so it's better I just keep my mouth shut and let someone else do that. Or maybe uh, afraid of, of creating an awkward situation, right? Like if I share the gospel with somebody at work and they reject it, uh, then we've got to work together for the rest of time in this awkward situation that I've created. And, and so I don't, I, don't know how to, I, don't know how to, I don't know how to bridge that, and so I'll just keep my mouth shut. Here's the thing. If, if we want to be effective witnesses, if we want to be faithful in evangelism, there's a couple things that Jonah chapter 3 shows us that changes our thinking. Here's the thing. This morning, I, I, I'll give you some practical application at the end. But, but first, I want to spend the majority of our time working two, two things in the way in which our thoughts need to change, the way in which our thinking needs to shift. Because if our thinking shifts, our actions will follow. And so, so I want to I I break down a couple different thoughts that we see in Jonah chapter 3 that I think changes our perspective on, on evangelism, on sharing the gospel with our neighbors, coworkers, family. Here's the first one. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Now that's Jonah chapter 2, verse 9. And you may object and say, Matt, you said we see these in, uh, in Jonah 3. But that's in Jonah chapter 2. And that's true. If you want to see where that's said, go back to Jonah chapter 2, verse 9. Jonah says, salvation, salvation belongs to the Lord. But this is where we actually see it. Jonah chapter 3 is where we see this taking place, where we see this actually happening, that, that salvation Belongs to the Lord. Jonah preaches a a five-word sermon here. Jonah preaches a five-word sermon here, and his heart's not even in it, right? If you go and read chapter 4, which we'll do next week, his heart's not even in it. Jonah preaches a five-word sermon here. His heart's not even in it, and it's not even a good sermon, evangelistically speaking. And there's change in people's hearts. People are are saved. People repent. People turn from their, their wickedness, their evil ways. Look at the words here in the text. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. He didn't tell them why. He didn't tell them who was overthrowing them. He didn't tell them how to repent, what to do uh, as far as their wickedness, how to come to God, how to to, to give God their their lives. And and yet people respond in a massive revival. Why is that? It's because salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord worked in these people's hearts. The Bible teaches us that God works in people's hearts to bring them to repentance. This is not a work we can do. He's the one that creates a hunger in the human heart. He's the one that uses our our circumstances, maybe our brokenness, maybe tragedies in our lives. He's the one that uses all of those things to break us and to humble us where he's the one left that we're looking to. He's the one that gives the gift of faith. And this is not just unique to, to Jonah and to the Ninevites. You think about the rest of Scripture. I want to give you some. You can write these down. Listen to the rest of Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3. Paul says, No one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. John chapter 1, verse 13. He gave the right to become the children of God, those who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's a gift from God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. John chapter 6, verse 37 and 44. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me I will never cast out. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And here's the thing. I give you these verses because this is what we see in Jonah taking place. And here's what it should do for you. 
believer. It should cause you to relax because it teaches you that the weight of someone's conversion is off your shoulders. It's not on you to convince them. God does the convincing. He's the one that does that. Listen, you can give the finest presentation of the gospel that anyone has ever heard, and if God is not drawing them to himself, John chapter 6, then they're not going to be born again. Here's the flip side of that. You can give the lousiest presentation of the gospel, and the gospel be present, and God used that to affect, in, in the human heart, regeneration. Both are true. People are not converted by eloquent words or by a, a put-together presentation or the right presentation of the God. People are converted by the power of God, the Holy Spirit drawing them to himself. And, and so it really boils down to our understanding of exactly what is taking place in conversion, right? We're, we're never going to understand this or be faithful in doing it until we understand exactly what is taking place in conversion, in someone being born again. We often think, and this is the error, we often think we're dealing with skeptics, Right? that need to be convinced or persuaded to the truth of the gospel. Or we think we're, we're dealing with bad people that need to be convinced to be good people. That's not what the Bible teaches us. The Bible, the Bible teaches us that we're dealing with dead people that need to be raised to life. That's the image the Bible gives us. And that's something we have no power to do, that only God has the power and ability to do. And so that's the first thing we see in our text this morning that we need to remember. That's the way in which our, our thinking needs to shift. The pressure's not on you. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Now let me connect some dots for you before I tell you our next observation in the text, or the next point. Salvation belongs to the Lord, Jonah 2 verse 9. We've seen it happen now in Jonah chapter 3 with the Ninevites. So salvation belongs to the Lord, and we know that we're saved by grace through faith. Ephesians chapter 2, I just read that verse to you as well. So salvation belongs to the Lord, we're saved by grace through faith. The, the next logical question then is, so how are we given the gift of faith? If salvation belongs to the Lord and we're saved by faith, how are we given faith? That's our second observation. Faith comes by hearing. Faith comes by hearing. Now I'm going to do another thing here. And, and just like I gave you Jonah chapter 2 verse 9, and then we saw it fulfilled in Jonah chapter 3, I'm going to give you Romans chapter 10 verse 17. That's the, the title of the point here. But I want to read you the rest of the verse and then show you how it's fulfilled in Jonah chapter 3, the entire verse, Romans 10, 17, says this. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So God saves, God gives us eternal life through his word. So that teaches us our, 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 our thinking needs to shift. The Bible is not just for information. The Bible is not just uh, so that we can have these commands to follow, things to do or not do. The, the, the word of God has power in it. It is power. And I think we need to be uh, convinced of that. Let me, let me illustrate this to you using the word of God. Remember in Matthew chapter 9? In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus looked at a, at a lame man and he says, rise and walk. Now that's a command, all right? That's a command to tell this lame man to get up and obey, to command him to do this, to get up and walk, something he hadn't done. Now I can command someone all day long, I can command a lame person, man or woman, to, to get up and walk. There's actually no power in it. But Jesus' words, they're not only a command, they are also the power to obey that command. His words were a command and simultaneously the power to do that thing he was commanding that person to do. You've heard me say this before. The gospel is not good news to the people it never gets to. 
The gospel's not good news to people it never gets to. And so the word can't do its work in people that have never heard it. This means that our objective is to get the word of God into people's lives. To get people into the presence of the word so that God can do work through his word in their hearts. Like the friends that brought the paralytic man to Jesus, we need to get our friends, neighbors, co-workers under the preaching of the word of God, under the teaching of the word of God, in the presence of the scriptures, the word of God, so the Holy Spirit will use that in their lives to draw them to salvation. The application of this truth is huge for our understanding of our part in the mission of God in evangelism, right? Listen to me closely. I don't want you to hear me wrong here. Our objective is not their salvation. Only God can do that. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Remember, John chapter 2, verse 9. Our objective is to get them in the presence of the Word of God. That's it. The Word of God does the work from there. And you may think, well, Matt, that sounds kind of backwards. That sounds strange or maybe even harsh that our objective isn't their salvation. And I, I think I see what you mean. And I think your heart's in the right place. Like we desire their salvation absolutely. We desire that they be born again, absolutely. But here's the, here's the thing. When our objective is their salvation, then that's where we get this exhausting, unsustainable burden that comes with evangelism. Like it's on me to make sure that happens. That's exhausting. That's an unsustainable burden. And it can't be your objective because it's not something in your power. Only God can do that. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing is something that we do have the ability to do. We can tell. We can share. We can give the word of God such that they read, hear, and can be born again because God uses his word to draw them to himself. Now, I told you we're going to look into and see our role in the mission of God. And here's, here's how this is really cool in our lives. Though the power to save is the Lord's. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's through the word of God Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ that God uh, saves, that draws to himself. And so here's the thing. God uses human mouthpieces to deliver that word. In the text that we're reading in Jonah, it's a rebellious prophet that actually heard the command to go and do this and ran the other way. God still uses that rebellious prophet, puts his words in his mouth. God uses that word and these people, these awful, wicked, brutal people are saved from the wrath of God. But it's not just true in the book of Jonah. Here's the thing. Study the rest of Scripture. Look at the book of Acts that we just spent eight months studying. I think there's perhaps nowhere in the Bible that makes this more clear to us than the book of Acts that we just studied. That God uses human mouthpieces to proclaim the Word of God, and that Word of God has the ability to save under the power of the Holy Spirit. Think about the book of Acts. Acts chapter 8, right? You have this Ethiopian eunuch, and what's he doing? He's sitting there reading the scroll of Isaiah, I mean, that's a pretty great place to start for a lost person. He has the, the word of God, the prophet Isaiah, out, and he's, and he's reading, and he's, he's wanting to understand. And what does God do? God literally teleports Philip, the evangelist, to go so that Philip can speak and explain to the Ethiopian eunuch exactly what he's reading. Here's what you're reading, friend. This, 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 this scroll of Isaiah, here's what you're reading. This is the word of God, and he explained the word of God to him, and he's born again. It doesn't stop there, though. If you think about Acts chapter 10, you have the Gentile, Cornelius. You remember that guy? He's seeking for truth. He's, he's desiring truth, and God sends an angel who basically says, God's heard your prayers. Go find a guy named Peter. He'll explain the word of God to you. Side note here, 
Any guess where Peter's at when Cornelius is receiving this vision? He's in Joppa. That's where Jonah tried to run away from God to. Anyways, I don't think it's any theological significance here, just kind of a neat fact. But Cornelius, like the Ethiopian eunuch, heard the word of God from a human mouthpiece that God sent to speak the word of God to him. But then you have this account between, that was, that was Acts chapter 8 and Acts chapter 10, but you also have Acts chapter 9. Do you remember what happened in Acts chapter 9? This is where we have Paul, at that time still Saul, and he's headed to go in and kill Christians, right? And watch this. This is, this is really good. God literally knocks him off of his horse. You remember the, the light, the blinding light, the blindness that Paul received, the, the word of Jesus to him on that Damascus road. Here's the thing. Here's the question that we should be asking as we read of, of Paul's conversion account. Why didn't he just seal the deal there? God just knocked him off his horse and, and, and Jesus shows up in this blinding light. Why didn't God just explain the gospel to him there as he lay in the middle of the Damascus road? Because he sends him to Ananias. And Ananias preaches the gospel to him. He explains to him, this is what's going on. This is who you're persecuting. So this, is, this is what Jesus has done on your behalf. The point being made in Acts and here in Jonah is that the word of God is meant to be shared from human being to human being. God desires to use us in that process of sharing his word, which has the power to save. As that word is shared, God does the work of salvation by taking that word and affecting salvation in the life of a sinner that was dead and becomes alive. Now, in light of that truth that in Jonah we see, this is exactly what happens in, in, with Jonah, even though Jonah's heart's not even there, even though Jonah's, Jonah's not, not desiring that that happen, We've seen it in the book of Acts. Let me give you three real quick. So that's the way our thinking needs to change. Salvation belongs to the Lord. We, we have to remember that. That takes the pressure off of us to fulfill this thing, to make it happen. And that, that, that salvation, gift of faith, which comes through the, the hearing of the word of Christ. Now then, our, shift, our mind and our, our thinking can be shifted. I want to give you three. Go and do this. Points of application. Real practical words of application that I think we can, that we can benefit from in this text. First one may be incredibly obvious. Get the word of God into people's hands. Get the word of God into people's ears. And here's, a, here's a really simple idea. Here's a really simple idea. A practical step to help you with this. Um, this, is, this is not original to me. Uh, Pastor J.D. Or Pre, J.D. Greer, president of the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, made this point of application as the Summit Church was walking through this, and I thought it was really helpful. It says, make a list of verses. I don't know, you can type it out on a, on a piece of a copy paper or write it out, whatever the case may be, but not just the reference. Go ahead and, and write out the actual verses. Some of your favorites, maybe, uh, maybe ones that have always meant something to you uh, growing up or as a, as a Christian in your, in your walk with Christ. Or maybe one's about salvation. That's a good idea. Maybe one's about how God has redeemed us from sin. Maybe ones that we've even discussed today. Write those out. Write several verses out. Give that list to a friend, a coworker, a, a family member. And then ask him to take a few days or a week or whatever the case may be and read over those verses and then, then reflect on those verses to literally write out in a few sentences, what's the main thought? What's going on here in this verse? Would you be, would you be willing to do this? Just entertain me and, 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 and practice this exercise with me. What is this verse saying? What's the main thought here? And then in a sentence or two, what does it mean for you? What does it mean for, for you, for your life? And then tell them you want to get back with them. And at some point in the next week or so, discuss. 
Have a conversation about it. We would do similar things with fantasy football or, or with fill in the blank, whatever hobbies you enjoy, a book club or whatever the case may be. Hey, let's discuss this. I'm just interested to know what your thoughts are, to see where you're at on this. Here's the thing. Get them in the presence of the Word of God and allow the Word of God by the Spirit of God to do a work in their heart. It's as simple as that. You be their guide. You be their tour guide through the Word of God. Here's another thing. Don't, don't count your wins here as someone trusting Christ. They, they prayed to receive Christ. Count your wins here as simply getting the Word of God in front of them. Because, the God, because God is the, is the one who can affect salvation. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Here's another thing, another simple idea. Bring them to church. I'm not talking about just like, hey, we're, we're having this thing. Well, you should come. Like, say, I'll show up at 8 o'clock. I'll pick you up. We'll go grab a biscuit, and, uh, and then I'll, I'll bring you with me. We'll sit together at church. And then maybe we'll go to lunch afterwards, and, and, and I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts. What did you think? How did, how, did this, how did this change? How did this sit uncomfortable with you? Is there any questions you have from the sermon? Ask them questions about it. How is the word of God affecting you over a meal at lunch? Salvation belongs to the Lord, and faith comes by hearing. And so we, we must be about getting the word of God into people's hands and ears. Jonah, with all of his failings, all of his hypocrisies, he did just that. And God used it in an amazing way. That's one. Second is this. Pray for their salvation. If salvation belongs to God, and prayer, asking God to do what only he can do, it should become our greatest resource because we're asking God to do what only he can do. And salvation belongs to God. So that, that should be on our hearts that we, would, that we would daily be praying for people that were burdened for their salvation. Next week, next week we're going to see that Jonah is, is, is not our example in this. Jonah's actually praying the opposite. He's actually praying that they would not repent and believe. He wanted them to be, uh, to, to be judged and the wrath of God to fall upon these people. There's a question for you. How many people are you praying for right now to be brought into the kingdom of God? Let me ask it a different way, maybe a little more pointed. If God answered in one fell swoop every prayer that you prayed last week, would anybody new be in the kingdom of God? If God answered every one of your prayers from last week, would there be anyone new born again? Because you've been praying for them. The Ninevites' sin, and it was great. The Ninevites' sin was not the obstacle that stood in the way of their forgiveness. Jonah's failure to get the word of God to them was. His heart bent against them was. And may God break our hearts and cause our knees to fall that we would be in prayer for the folks that, that we love and we don't want to see them perish. We don't want to see them under the wrath of God. May our hearts break. May we see them as Christ sees them and beg God to do what only he can do. So we pray. And third thing, and this is last, wait upon God. Wait upon God. It's not something you can go out and just absolutely do tomorrow. You can do it, but it's something that you're going to have to continue to do. Because here's the thing, some of the greatest movements of God happened after people labored faithfully for years and years and years with no fruit. Getting the word of God before people, getting the word of God into their ears and into their hands for years and seeing no change. Think of Adoniram Judson in the, 18th, uh, in the 1800s. He was a missionary to Burma that for seven years he labored and told, uh, sharing the gospel, spreading the word of God, and he never saw a convert. 
William Carey, same way. Seven years in India in the, in the, in the uh, 1800s, he lost uh, children to disease. He lived in poverty. He lived with the threat of literal tiger t- attacks every night, being cursed by the people that he was witnessing to for seven years without seeing someone converted. Don't give up. Wait upon the Lord. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation, and there is no sin too great for the mercy of God. So if you feel like I've been praying for years and I've seen nothing, pray more. Ask God to do what only he can do. Keep holding up the compassion of God, the mercy of God, the word of God that he'll use in their hearts to draw them to salvation. Keep praying even when you're not seeing fruit and wait upon God. Let's pray together.